This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, November 10th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Now imagine, imagine for a second that... You have a notice for jury duty. You live in San Diego, you know, jury duty, it's a hassle. You didn't pay much attention to the notice, but the date's approaching. It's at the end of the month. So you put it in your calendar. You told work, I got to take off a jury duty. And you show up on that date. It's September 28th. The court assigns you to a judge. His name is Judge Curiel. Wait, that name, that seems familiar. And then you're asked if you could be impartial in this civil case. Sure. What about if the plaintiffs are claiming that they were conned and the defendant is well known? Very well known very powerful. In fact, legendarily vindictive and now with almost limited resources. Yes, you have been asked to sit on the jury in the civil trial of students of Trump U against the new president-elect. He is on trial. You will be asked to serve on a jury of his peers. Can you imagine that? By the way, the judge in that trial ruled today that statements made during the campaign can be used as evidence in this trial. It will never end for these 12 people. Weird, right? Pretty weird. So much weird going on. Like, imagine if Barack Obama said a couple years ago, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to open an Orange Julius store right down the street from the White House. Obama Julius. Don't worry, Michelle will run it. I won't put the money in my pocket. I'm going to say that might be seen as inappropriate. And yet the Trump Hotel is opening right down the street from the White House. Also, I will say right here, I do not think Trump is going to live in the White House. I think he wants to live in a place that says Trump. Literally, on the edifice, it says Trump. So he may commute from, say, Trump D.C. Hotel. Now on the show today, we're going to continue what we started. More rock, less talk. Actually, more questions, fewer answers. So instead of the spiel, I'll give you extra bonus interviews. In fact, I'm going to give you three. So Adam Davidson will be on to discuss three main pieces of Trump's proposed economics plan. In other words, just how bad can it get? Also, John Dickerson is here to talk about what happened on Tuesday and what happens next. But first, I want to talk about the most visible rejection of a Trump candidacy. Last night and today, protesters took to the streets of several cities, and they were outside Trump-branded properties in New York and Chicago. And I, I don't know exactly how to feel about them. Yes, it's a First Amendment right. Sure, you register your disgust. Of course, you call out racism and sexism and you name them. And yeah, you, you got to know that the crowd will probably burn a flag or commit vandalism and opponents of the protesters will point to that exclusively. And yet, we live in a democracy. We have continuity of government. Those were the results of a vote by your fellow citizen. And I think about the main chant. Did you hear that? Not my president, not my president. And I don't know what to think. So joining me now is Jacob Weisberg, host of Trumpcast. 
Hello, Jacob. Hello, Mike. You are not in favor of the Trump presidency, so I've called upon you. And I think that I want to maybe role play. Let's say you have a teenage daughter, right? I do. Is she voting age? Not quite. She's 17. Okay. So let's say she says, Dad, I'm really disgusted and there's this protest going on. Do you think I should go? I'm thinking of going. Yeah, except the reality of that, she would just be, Dad, I'm going. I know. And I know I, how teenagers I, work. I, I think I would applaud her for going, you know, in part because because she's at an age when that's a meaningful and important thing to do uh, and to participate in the tradition of American protest. But, you know, when I hear that chant, I think like you, I have slightly mixed feelings. Uh, if not my president means I don't accept that he is president, I don't like that because that's a rejection of – the results of a democratic election. And, you know, in the – I think it was in the last debate when at some point Trump referred to Obama speaking to Hillary Clinton as your president. Mm-hmm. I jumped on him about that and a lot of people did too because the president is everybody's president. You don't, don't get to pick your own president separate from the, the will of the voters. But on the other hand, if not my president means I don't accept what this guy represents – he doesn't represent my views of the world. I'm okay with that. I wish they'd pick a slightly less ambiguous phrase. But people protesting to say, we stand with immigrants, we stand with African Americans, we stand with women, we don't accept this rupture with democratic norms that Trump represents, by all means be out protesting. But don't protest in a way that suggests that there's an alternative result that you support, that, you know, that because Hillary Clinton got more popular votes, you think really she should actually be the president. Yeah, I'm sure it's a mishmash of a lot of things. And I'll acknowledge that we are in the great position of having these outlets, these podcasts where we could talk about these feelings. And I'm glad that, I mean, if you look at people who study these things, they will always tell you one of the great role of protests is not to change anything, but just to be a release valve, right? Just to allow venting. And yet at the same time, I do believe that a lot of the people are essentially saying, not just that, oh, this guy doesn't share my values, but... We don't want him to be president. We would like something else to happen, some intervention, so that he were not president. For instance, if electors want to be faithless in the Electoral College, I'm sure they'd be all in favor of it. Well, I don't think they'll get enough of him in any case. You know, it's kind of why I don't go to very many protests. Cause I'm you're not always, the protesting <laughs> sort either. Well, yeah. you, for the same reason I am, right? We, like, love ma- making these distinctions. You go to a protest and, you know, you, you broadly support the values around, you know, being against climate change. I think the big anti-climate change march in New York was the last thing I went to. But there's always some idiot next to you who shouts down with capitalism, you know, and you're like in a picture with that guy. You just feel like somehow you become responsible or implicated in the things other people say that you might violently disagree with. Yeah. And I will complicate this by saying so. But of the other alternatives, something like vote the next time in two years, that is lame or give money to a political organization that didn't work or go to Twitter or Facebook. That is something we mock. There doesn't seem to be a really good outlet if you don't have your own podcast. I think there have been I mean, part of what I've seen at high schools and colleges, I actually find really Inspiring. I mean, I don't think we should just like go back to normal. I think taking taking a moment to observe what's happened, register register your outrage, and indicate that you are going to now react by getting politically involved in a way maybe you haven't been. You think that's what people need to do. That's what should be happening. There's nothing wrong with protesting to express your unhappiness 
with the person who's now going to be president. Yeah, I don't think like, oh, let's give him a Mike Murphy was saying, oh, let's give him a chance to uh, be president and be a good president. I don't think that's going to happen. And I think that there is a value to say we're going to be vigilant and watching you. And yet at the same time, I do so much believe in the continuity of government and taking the high road and what Obama was talking about the other day. And I think that the protests stand in opposition to that as much as they represent a voicing of an anti-racist or anti-sexist candidate who got elected. Well, we've lived through the false equivalence of, you know, Trump's like 50 serial outrages are the same as, you know, Hillary Clinton's email server. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. We don't want the reverse false equivalence now, which is what tends to happen on, on cable news, where the alternative to Donald Trump is people burning the flag. Yeah. Right. I mean, people burning flags represent a tiny, tiny subsection of the anti-Trump opinion. But because it's visual, because it's outrageous, because it's extreme, you're going to see that and that's going to stoke the, the pro-Trump sentiment, because given that choice, there are a lot of people who wouldn't choose Trump otherwise who would choose him. Yeah. So hug a flag or burn a flag. Wave a flag. Wa- wave go. a flag at your protest. Don't get, don't let the, 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 the American flag doesn't belong to the right wing. That's called reappropriation. Very good. Jacob Weisberg hosts the Trumpcast podcast. Thank you, Jacob. Thank you, Mike. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Joining me now is Adam Davidson, who covers economics for The New Yorker. Hello, Adam. Hey, Mike. Of Donald Trump's stated economic proposals, here are a couple, and tell me if I'm missing one, and I'd like you to say which ones do you think, if enacted, will be most disastrous, and maybe you could take them and say, you know, what the chances are that they won't be enacted or they will only be enacted in a very modified form, and I'm thinking of three big ones. One is his uh, tax proposal, which would add a lot to the deficit and give huge tax cuts to, well, fairly significant tax cuts to everybody, but huge tax cuts to the rich. Second one, this is the one that worries me the most, the 45% tariff and a possible trade war with China. And then, and I haven't even begun to think about the implications of this, but whoever he appoints as Fed chairman, and if it can be, you know, a person who's just there to do his personal bidding. And if I forgot one, tell me what else I should be worried about. That's a pretty good start. I mean, I think there's lots of other things that scare me, you know, that have nothing to do with economics, yes. but it's clearly all but certain that, you know, a Republican Congress and a Republican president will pass dramatic tax cuts. And it's going to be fascinating to see if there are grownups in the room, you know, on the Republican side, and do they stop the worst excesses or not. But I would say, without question, there's going to be a dramatic tax cut, and it's going to be designed you know, this is a generational opportunity for, or a multi-generational opportunity for Republicans who I think many sincerely believe that a permanent tax cut will dramatically increase growth in the country. What, part of what scares me about that is I think there's a good chance they're right in the short term. I mean, there's a good chance that a sudden and dramatic tax cut will be a stimulus. I mean, you know, tons of people have more money to spend. It'll probably mean more investment and and more jobs in the short term. 
if it is as generous or, or even within the ballpark of as generous as Trump's plan, you know, I think we're talking about a possibly permanent crowding out. Crowding out means that government doesn't collect enough revenue to cover basic services. And so the government is basically functionally incapable of doing anything other than a very basic, the entitlements perhaps, although probably even a modified form of entitlements, and defense. And and even those are constrained. So Grover Norquist's dream, in other words. Grover Norquist's dream, yeah, of of a government so small that he could kill it in his bathtub. Of um, And I want to keep emphasizing, we're talking about the goal here will be permanent, meaning trying to embed these so thoroughly that even if we elect, you know, Bernie Sanders president next, the government will just be constrained in a way. Um, and, and this is deeply troubling for a million reasons, one of which is, we, you know, we have an aging population. Um, we know that inequality and, and many of the deep issues that unfortunately were not enough to, to win Hillary Clinton the presidency are only going to increase. We're only going to have more people left out of the system. That's even if we had kind of pro-poor, you know, Democratic Party policy. So funding for education, funding for giving people a, a path on, you know, onto the middle class, that sort of thing starts to feel both even more vital and even less possible. So that really scares me. And, and again, part of what scares me is that might be something that, you know, we don't pay that bill for a while. And so at first it feels like fun and free money. Trade really, 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 really scares me. Um, I don't think Trump voters fully understand how much their day-to-day livelihood is tied in with trade, how much likely their jobs, but certainly their consumption is tied in with our global trading system. And, you know, we've been steadily increasing trade since at least the Kennedy administration. We don't really have a modern understanding of how you would even unravel that or what exactly Trump means by that. But any kind of step in that direction of curtailing NAFTA or or anything like that, um, that that might spark a trade war, I mean, that will be very painful and and most painful on exactly the people we're told are Trump voters. So so that is really terrifying. But if you want to really, really, really get scared, think about the Fed, the Federal Reserve. And as a economic journalist who tries to explain economics to a broad audience, there's nothing harder to talk about than the Fed. It's a very confusing organization. It, you know, it is kind of weird that it's this like unelected group of um, secret magicians who control the levers of our money. You know, I, I get why people are kind of freaked out about it, but it is a steady, reliable, predictable Fed is the single most important thing in the world. I mean, it's hard to overstate. When you have a central bank that acts irresponsibly, you get Hitler. I mean, literally, Hitler existed because of a central bank that acted irresponsibly. You get the collapse of states. Even acting, you know, not quite as irresponsibly as Weimar Republic or or Zimbabwe, you can do a ton of damage. So if he picks one of his cronies who don't you know, who doesn't, isn't part of the very long and very proud tradition of macroeconomic policy, it's hard to imagine if Vladimir Putin or someone else truly want to destroy America, that would be the best avenue to choose is start truly messing with the Fed. So, the, And that's messing in two ways. One way is, you know, actually getting them to do policies that are bad. But the other way is just turning the Fed from something trusted to something not trusted. Because, you know, the Fed has spent 
more than a century building the trust and confidence of the world, and and it could go away shockingly quickly. You know, if if you have like a normal distribution of like best case to worst case, mm-hmm. I'd say there is a chance, and you know, I, I'm not predicting this, but there is a chance that we have a short term economic. Uh, uptick from because of the, a, cause of the tax cuts, because the tax cuts, infrastructure right. spending, mm-hmm. etc. But my base case, you know, lots of things can happen. Who knows? We still don't know who who's going to be running his policies, etc. But my expectation is that for the rest of our lives, the United States will be a poorer country than it was. That the entire world will be poorer than it would have been, and we have a real and true risk of a fundamental destruction of the very building blocks of our way of life. Now, that last thing might be, you know, I don't know, a 5% chance, but there was a 5% chance at one point that Trump would be president. So these are terrifying times. And I don't even think economic policy is his worst set of policies. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Mike. Adam's New Yorker colleague, Evan Osnos, will be on the show tomorrow. Osnos wrote the definitive piece on what a Trump presidency might look like. And now that a Trump presidency is going to happen, we will ask Osnos to weigh in. Here he is on what Trump's immigration policies may portend. I think a lot of us imagine that Donald Trump's plans for immigration are so vast. They're so out of the ordinary bounds of governance that it's like, well, he's basically just doing this for political theater. It's not going to happen. And what Julie Myers Wood, who ran the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Service under George W. Bush, told me was, look, I don't agree with, with what Donald Trump is saying here, but you are making a grave mistake if you believe it's impossible. It's not binary. There are tools available to the president under executive power that would allow him to go very far down the road to making this happen. John Dickerson is the host of CBS Face the Nation. He is a panelist on the Slate Political Gap Fest. And I would like to note that of all the Sunday morning hosts, he is the only one that did not show up on uh, the Donald Trump insult meter that was put together by the New York Times a couple weeks ago. Congratulations, John. I know, although uh, I feel as though I was uh, I was denied a place because he did once call me um, very dishonest, but apparently it had it didn't meet the criteria because it wasn't on Twitter. He called it to me in person. Oh, well, it's that personal touch that they all it's retail politics. Yeah. All right. Uh, I want to ask you first, how do you feel? Uh, Well, I'm rather tired um, because, you know, it wasn't just a late night, but it was super intense because you're trying to figure out what's going on. Why for a long time, why is Florida doing what it's doing? The white vote in Florida was down from 67% to 61%. The Latino vote was up a point and Hillary Clinton was doing well there. She was jamming in Broward and Miami-Dade. Why was it so close and where was this happening and why was it happening? And she was winning uh, at both ends of the I-4 corridor. And so you're like peering into historical data. You're peering into the exit polls from 12, from 16. Uh, you're looking at the counties as they come in and you're doing that from basically seven o'clock until three thirty in the morning. So it's, it's super. So anyway, and then uh, up again at five thirty. So I'm a little, um, I'm, I'm on going on a lot of caffeine and then having those moments where you like your body like has brownouts where you just like, it, like, 
can't um, kind of proceed. But um, anyway, that's more than you wanted to know. Here we go. Um, Is the general idea of the election that this was an election won by non-college educated white men, is that true for all the states that he won? Like, is it as true for Florida as it is Wisconsin? Yeah, you know, that's such a good question. I don't think it is. So as you quite rightly pointed out, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, Iowa, that's the sweet spot for your non-college educated. It's a, it's a much greater share of the population. Uh, and you also have a smaller minority share, at least in Iowa and in Ohio, um, and actually in Michigan, too. I mean, smaller relative to New Hampshire, uh, relative to North Carolina and Virginia. Mm-hmm. The battle on, on Tuesday night was between Donald Trump trying to run up his score with white, uh, white non-college and Hillary Clinton trying to run up her score with African-Americans, Latinos, and college-educated women. And in the Rust Belt states, and I'm just going to lump all those in the Rust Belt state category, um, there was not a large enough minority population, and she didn't turn it out anyway. And there was a, a, a smaller portion of the highly educated population to grab. When she could get that population in Virginia and Colorado, she won. The kind of nice edge state would have been North Carolina, which had a 22% African-American vote and the research triangle, white college-educated women. Uh, she just didn't do it there. She just, you know, part of the little, lots of little problems African-American turnout down, in part perhaps because of the restrictive voting laws. Uh, millennials turned out three points greater than in 12, but some of them went to Johnson. Um, now, to your point, Florida, she lost college-educated women by, I think, I, I think 20 points, yeah. which is a total reversal of her um, posture with that voting group in most other states. And obviously, the balance she was trying to do, uh, you know, is, is win with, white, uh, with, with those white college-educated to balance out his enormous victory among men and particularly non-college men. And she just, she didn't match it. She didn't even, I think she basically matched Obama's record and he outperformed. I have also noted that if you look at the Senate races that were close, um, there is pretty much a through line with how much the Republicans embraced or distanced themselves from Trump uh, to how well they did. For instance, Mark Kirk totally ran away from him and he lost in Illinois. Uh, Heck in Nevada pretty much disavowed him and he lost. Whereas Ron Johnson played footsie but showed up at the convention and he won and burned North Carolina was campaigned with him and he won and I, uh, she embraced him and then backed away from him and it looks like she's going to lose. That's remarkable. Yes, yeah. but the states where the, where the uh, senators won are states that Trump won. So you can see why those senators made the smart, smart read of their own electorate in their states. Whereas in Nevada, you know, you can imagine they were looking at the, at the electorate that ultimately didn't turn out for Trump and making the, making the decision like, okay, well, I've got to try and run to the electorate, not towards the nominee. The question is whether you can ever get under your, get out from under your nominee. I mean, I don't think you can really. Now, having said that, Rob Portman did a great job, but why did he do a great job? Because he worked his tail off to create a separate identity and just like his history in, in, in Ohio. What will be left of the Obama legacy? Wow, what a great question. I mean, so there's the temperamental, the, 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 the temperament and behavior of Obama, and there's his actual legislation. I mean, I, you know, Paul Ryan in his um, press conference after the election was was making it seem like he was just going to, you know, put the bill uh, to repeal and replace Obamacare on Trump's desk 
that was vetoed by Obama and just have that get signed. So early on, you, you'll repeal the largest piece of legislation, signature domestic policy. Uh, you'll see uh, his dreamers, uh, all his executive orders, I think, on immigration will go. Now, oh, climate change also probably gone and then a bunch of regulations. But I think you could imagine the legacy uh, being, let's say, Obamacare gets repealed and replaced, and what it's replaced with is a total disaster. Then the legacy will be burnished by, you know, it'll take a few generations, not a few generations, it'll take a few administrations maybe before people said, wow, you know, we didn't understand how Obamacare worked. Then there's the temperament question. You know, um, if if one president is a temperamental reaction to the previous one, Obama was considered professorial and that people talked about the postpartisan era. Donald Trump has never been described as professorial and he is all partisanship. That you could imagine the chaos that was so successful that, that Donald Trump created in the primary uh, primaries and general election that was so successful for him being um, a little too nervous making for people when he creates that kind of chaos as a president. If, in fact, that's what happens and he's not a like smashing success, then people will think much better of Barack Obama, whose approval ratings already been rising as Donald Trump has been rising. So what's the evidence for that, for the smashing success versus policies failing? If his policies fail, will they will they be seen as failures right away? Do presidents have uh, tricks and means to convince the uh, electorate that things are going well when they're not? It's a good it's a good question because presumably in Trump's case you're going to have buy-in from all Republicans because the House and Senate will have had to vote for them and so there will be a conspiracy not a well a conspiracy to say that whatever is doing you know is working mm-hmm. um, I guess in the same way you have that conspiracy with Obamacare. There is there's so much unknown about Trump, uh, what his policies will be. He issued few position papers. He talked up the same few policies. Perhaps there are many, many areas of government he hasn't even ever considered. And I've talked to some Republicans who say, well, what we can expect is someone like Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell to steer him. So he will essentially govern more or less as a mainstream Republican. That might be wishful thinking on their part. What do you think will happen? Yeah, I think that I've heard that a lot, too. Uh, members of Congress have definitely mentioned the kind of just sign what Paul Ryan hands you thing. <laughs> um, I think it's possible. You know, he's not a details guy on, on the policy. He'll hand that over to Mike Pence. Pence and Ryan are relatively fellow travelers. He likes the idea of legislation being put before him that he can sign and then say, hey, I'm, I've done something. So I was reading Margaret Sullivan in the Washington Post, and she wrote a column that I think a lot of people in the media are thinking these kinds of thoughts, that we didn't get the huge enthusiastic crowds at Donald Trump's rallies. We didn't think they could really translate into that many votes. We couldn't believe that the America that the media knew could embrace someone who mocked a disabled man and bragged about assaulting women and the misogyny misogyny and the racism. It was too horrible. Therefore, according to some kind of magical thinking, it couldn't happen. Now, I know you are a big look at empirical data and look at the polls, but you are also a big get out there and interview people. Did we fall down as a media in that part of it where we didn't get the anger that was out there? I don't, I, well, it depends. We all, you know, there are a thousand different ways we could have messed it up. I, I am um, nervous and skeptical of um, some of our colleagues who sort of name their own shortcomings uh, or shortcomings of their friends and apply it to the entire media. You know, to your point about getting out in the country, I think one of my failings was overreading all the conversations I've had over the years with conservatives and grassroots conservatives going all the way back to the Buchanan campaign and overweighting um, their long 
expressed preference for ideological fixity and saying what you're going to, you know, doing what you're going to, uh, what you say you're going to do when, um, when you're under pressure. Because I, I kind of overweighted that, I thought Donald Trump is never going to be the nominee. He's just had too many positions on these things. He has no core. And people are always talking about core convictions. And, you know, he's constantly changing things around. Yes, he, he's entertaining. But, you know, at some point, it's very easy and pat to say, well, reporters, you know, they don't get out there. They don't understand this, this constituency. And my argument is, you know, after having been and covered and spent time with that constituency for 25 years, I basically felt the way Ted Cruz did, which is that um, Trump would fall of his own weight, that people who cared a lot about conviction politicians would basically discount him over time. That was my own failing. I think the other thing is that um, the idea that um, all Trump voters were not offended by the things he said uh, I don't think is right. I mm-hmm. think there is a core group of, of Trump's uh, supporters who took him off the hook on a lot of things. I certainly interviewed a lot of them and said, uh, you know, we didn't mean that. Or, you know, it was locker room talk or, you know, he was being strategic. It was, you know, people were very good at coming up with explanations for him. But then there were a lot of people who were just regular old Republicans who wanted somebody wearing the Republican shirt because they believe in Republican ideals. And these are the people who are in the group that 60% in the exit poll said he was unfit to be commander in chief. And yet 20% of those people voted for him. In other words, people who recognize that it's gross and vulgar uh, to boast about assaulting women, but that's not going to, you know, keep them from voting for the Republican, especially when Hillary Clinton is on the other side of it. Right. And today, those Republicans with a Republican House, a Republican Senate, a soon-to-be Republican Supreme Court, do not regret the fact that there is a Republican in the White House. I think that is exactly right. And Paul Ryan is the poster child for that. He thinks that and almost dropped his support for Donald Trump entirely because he thought what Donald Trump was describing in that bus was not just awful, but, but predatory. And nevertheless, today, he was talking about all the great things that can get done now that Donald Trump is the president. And so um, that's a perfect example. John Dickerson, Slate's political gab fest, host of Face the Nation and a human experiment in sleep deprivation plus exit polls. Thank you, John. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Take care. That's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson waited to see, but she has now confirmed that Barack Obama was right. The sun did rise this morning. Just producer Chris Berube is waiting for tomorrow. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, noted that the Cleveland Cavaliers were at the White House. The next scheduled pro sports team will be the 1981 New Jersey Generals. In fact, one of them has been tapped to lead the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, recently left California for New York. The guy will do anything to get around that extra scent on soda. The gist with this guide on how to talk to your kids about election results. Do listen to what they have to say. Don't dwell too much on the possibility of faithless electors. Do be reassuring and positive. Don't keep them awake till 3 a.m., dress them in a white-on-white tie, and make them flank the podium near Mike Pence. Peru, Peru, and thanks for listening.